All right, last week we started a series on uh, spiritual disciplines. We want to look at corporate worship, corporate worship. That is not what corporate worship sounds like, but <laughs> all right. So this word corporate worship, you will not find in the Bible. Uh, it's not something that, um, uh, you know, there's a verse there which says, it talks about corporate worship. There's, the term is not there. There is no specific instruction for us in the New Testament as to what is corporate worship and how to corporate worship. Uh, one of the verses that we tend to look at is from Hebrews chapter uh, uh, 10, verse 24 and 25, which says, uh, let's consider how to stir one another up to love and to good works, not neglecting the meeting of, of one another, but encouraging uh, all the more as you see the day is coming. And you see, you have that one verse. Um, but I want to suggest to you that the entire Bible, the theme of the entire Bible is about God's people worshiping God together. That is, in a sense, is what we want to look at today. But I want to bring to you from God's word, and we'll turn to Psalm 73, to get the essence of what it means to us as a church. But before that, what I want to do is I want to give you like a context uh, from Genesis to Revelation so that you know that this idea of meeting together as a church that we meet together, it's not just a New Testament pattern. It's just God's idea since, uh, since even Genesis and even till Revelation. What, what's really interesting, what, what, uh, what really you know, grabs my attention is probably we are the only... Uh, religion or faith group that's, that has the imagery of the body of its founder. We call it the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, you know, no other group uh, called themselves the body of, you know, whoever founded the religion. But that means something. That means that we're not just a collection of people. We're not just, you know, like in a jar put together and we come together. And so we are in a jar, you know, independent but together. But we are a body. That means we are individual members, but there is an interconnection. There is something that connects us together. And, and if it's a body, then we have a role and we have a function. Now, one of that function is corporate worship. And so as we, as we see this theme of the Bible, it becomes apparent that this is not something that we just do, um, you know, for our own comfort. It's a command. So Psalm seventy-three, seventeen. I want to first read that verse, and I want to say that's the pivotal verse for today because that's the verse on which the response of the psalmist changes. So Psalm seventy-three, seventeen. until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Then I discerned their end. I think I want to suggest to you that it's a beautiful picture of corporate worship. We're not told what happened when the psalmist got into the temple. Um, but whatever happened there, it's not his coming into a geographical location that, uh, that created that response, but some 
something, some activity, some event that happened. We don't know exactly in this case, but we want to probe in to see what are some of those things that impact and are involved as part of the corporate worship. But let me start with the context. Uh, reiterating again that, that, that worship is not just merely uh, individual activity. That is, w- we are to personally worship, but that's not just it. We come together in corporate worship. Okay? So, uh, from, from Genesis, from Garden of Eden, since God uh, banishes Adam and Eve, you will recognize that it's his desire to bring his people back to himself. The first time we see this very intently laid out is in the blessing of Jacob that he gives to Judah. And there he says uh, that the ruler will come out of Judah. And then the blessing goes on to say in Genesis 49.10, unto him shall the gathering of his people be. This idea of worship that we gather together uh, unto his name is, is there for uh, Judah's blessing, Genesis 49 and 10. Then you get to the deliverance of Egypt. The nation of Israel have, have been slaves now for 400 years in the land of Egypt. And Moses comes, stands before Pharaoh, and he says, let my people go that they may uh, celebrate a feast in Exodus chapter 5, 1. Exodus chapter 8, 1, it says, so that they may worship me. The idea of deliverance here is that they would come out and that they would worship God. Uh, Later, when the feasts were given, after the law was given, there were seven feasts that were given, and when those feasts were given, three of those feasts, the Passover, the Pentecost, and the Boots, those three feasts meant that men from all over Israel had to come to Jerusalem. They would come together and worship together. So this idea of coming together, we see even in the feast. And uh, the, the temple became the focus when the temple was built. You see, people were collecting to the temple. That place was important. Uh, Daniel, when he prayed, when uh, this, this was the time when the temple was destroyed and he is actually in exile in Babylon, but he would turn to the direction of the temple and he would pray. Because for him, the place was important. Uh, remember John chapter 4 where the Samaritan woman who uh, told the Lord Jesus Christ, you Jews believe that worship must happen in Jerusalem. So the place was important at that time because that's where the Shekinah glory of God had come down to rest. But when Jesus came, things changed. He said, I'm the temple. You destroyed this temple, and in three days I'll raise it again. And he says that wherever two or three are gathered together in my name, I'll be there in the midst. He is a complete fulfillment of the Shiloh blessing, where unto him shall the gathering of his people be. And you see, see, what's happening is, it's not the place anymore, but it's the person. So we meet as a church, not in a church. You get that, right? So church is us people. It is not the building. So we, building doesn't matter anymore. The place doesn't matter anymore. It's the person, the Lord Jesus Christ. But worship, 
this concept, this idea of worship has remained the same. This is the desire of God. You see, the, the final fulfillment of that, if you would, turn with me to Revelation chapter 7. Revelation chapter 7, it's, it's a beautiful, uh, beautiful fulfillment, as it were, um, in, in verses 9 to 12. Let me read to you Revelation chapter 7, 9 to 12. And after this I looked, and behold, a great multitude to no one, that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes, the people and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to a God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever. Amen. What a picture. I know every heart that's been transformed has this beat that goes on their heart to be meeting around the throne. It's something about that, that, that the God's people have to be around God in the center, in the midst, and together. We're not excited about just being by ourselves. I don't know what it is that you, you know, experience. Was it a great restaurant that you found or... I don't know if you play golf and you had a hole-in-one or if you, uh, uh, you went to Paris. I know you saw the Eiffel Tower and you come back and say, you got to see this Eiffel Tower. You got to see the, you got to go eat at this restaurant. You need to experience what I experienced. You see, we are built to share. Our joy is more than doubled and encouraged when we share. And that's what corporate worship is all about, isn't it? That we come together as ones who've seen not just the greatest thing this world has to offer, but out of the world, the King of Kings and the God of, and the God of Gods, the Lord of Lords. So what then is corporate worship? I want us to answer two questions. That is, what is corporate quest, uh, uh, worship, and the second question is how to, like what, what, what's involved, okay? Those are the two questions we want to answer. So let me get you to look at what is corporate worship. Simply put, God's people worshiping the one God together as one people. God's people worshiping the one God together as one people. This is what A.W. Tozer uh, writes, and I think this is a beautiful picture. He says, individuals who are worshiping God individually through personal devotions and then gathering together with others for corporate times of worship. And so really what he is trying to say is that worship does not begin as an event, as a program, and we all come together. But because we are worshipers individually transformed by the grace of of God, we come together as we bring our worship into this crescendo, into the symphony of, of, uh, of worship to our God. It's the coming together of the redeemed as a symphony to the one 
who is worthy of it all. You know, sometimes we, we break up, you know, we have examples of what we call worship. We, we have the breaking of bread and, uh, and of, the, of the wine every Sunday. We sometimes call that the worship, uh, worship hour. And I want to suggest to you, no, that is where we come to uh, remember the Lord, show forth his death, because it then becomes a means of worship, because of we, are, we, are, we remember him, and you begin to see who he is. It becomes the means of worship. Sometimes we think about singing. We, we said, oh, I had a good time of worship as I stood and I prayed and I praised, uh, did this praise and worship. We call it the worship time. Oh, I had a good worship time. And then everything else is another activity. No, you see, singing it has caused you to remember who God is, led you to worship him. It's a means of worship. Preaching. Preaching is a means of worship because as I stand here and tell you about the goodness of my God, it urges in your heart to tell, to, to rem it reminds you of who our God is and it becomes a means of worship. And so every activity that we do together, even the fact of encouraging each other, why do I take time? Why do you take time to go tell somebody else, brother, sister, be encouraged? It's not because you're getting a brownie point, but it's because we recognize that that's how we urge each other to worship God. Worship, therefore, is this, this collation of all of those things that leads to show that he indeed is worthy. He indeed is the one that deserves all of our praise and of our word. Let me read to you this. It's a little long, but let me read to you. Uh, the, the title of their article is Worship as a Supernatural Encouragement. This is what it says. Not only does our worship as rescued sinners reflect an eternal reality, God also supernaturally utilizes our corporate gatherings to mature and encourage his people in ways not available anywhere else. God designed our faith to be communal and interdependent and markedly supernatural. When believers gather together as a worshiping community, we benefit from all the spiritual gifts of the body of Christ. Worship reminds us that, he, that the church is bigger and more beautiful than any one person or a few leaders alone. Each of us worshiping together is used of God to build each other up in Jesus Christ. I know it's a little long quote. I don't know if you lost me as I'm reading that, but I want you to understand this. What is happening is if I don't have all the spiritual gift to help me grow and mature in Christ and you have it and you have it, it's important, therefore, that we come together because as a body, we bring together the spiritual gift. It entices in me this desire to be like Jesus Christ because he, the Spirit of God who works in me to conform me to the the image of Jesus Christ is, is helped by the fact that we come together. So that's what the body does. It's not 
it's not an activity that we can do. Sometimes we just say, oh, I watched a sermon on YouTube and I'm done for Sunday. We are losing then the joy that we have as we come together and encourage each other, strengthen each other. Listen to this. Corporate worship is all of that we spoke about, done with intent to glorify God and to build up his people to the maturity of the fullness of stature found in Christ. Right? So at the risk of repeating, let me just go through some of the things that are involved. One is scripture, reading and preaching. We read that in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 14. Singing, psalms, hymns, spiritual song. We read that in Colossians chapter 3, verse 16. What about praying? 1 Timothy chapter 1, uh, chapter 2, sorry, 1 and 2. Uh, celebrating of ordinances, baptism, and, uh, and the breaking of bread. We read that in 1 Corinthians 11. Stirring up of one another to love and to good deeds. We saw that in Hebrews chapter 10, 24 and 25. So what's happening in corporate worship, God is exalted, his people are edified, built up. So corporate worship, therefore, is not just us coming together and independently and individually worshiping God, but the coalescing of the spiritual gifts of the activities and the works that we the work that we do together so together we exalt God and as a result we are built up okay so keeping that in mind we need to ask this question why do we do corporate worship right we understood what's involved but why that's what brings us to the psalm psalm 73 what i want to do is from here make four observations and draw out four principles that will help us understand this, um, this idea of um, corporate worship. So the first one, the first observation, is the psalmist is envious of the prosperity of the wicked. Is envious of the prosperity of the wicked. Listen to this. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart, but as for me, my feet almost tumbled and my feet nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. You see how quickly the psalmist is distracted. He begins by saying that God is good. He's been good to Israel and those who are pure of heart. I mean, we have no problem. We never say God has been evil to me. We, are, we understand the benevolence of God. But then I turn around and I look at the prosperity of someone else. Compared to myself, I start to envy. My gaze has moved so fixedly from away from the truth of God's word to what I see with my naked eyes. I look at how well the others do, and I become envious. And the psalmist says he almost lost his footing. He couldn't stomach the prosperity of someone else compared to his own. And so then he begins his complaints from verses 3 to verse 7. He has a list of complaints. First, they say they're financially better. Uh, when I saw the prosperity of the wick wicked. Verse 4, they're mentally strong. 
they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They're, they're also physically fitter. Verse 5, they're socially skilled. They, they're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of the mankind. Now, I understand I'm reading from ESV, but as I was uh, looking through the various translations, there's this concept of, uh, of the uh, mind, the body, the financial, the social becomes very clear. Then verses 6 to 9, it talks about this personal arrogance or this personal smugness. And what the psalmist is saying is this. Listen, I did this checklist. You tell me I've got God. You tell me that God blesses me. They are financially better. They're mentally better. They seem to be doing socially better. They, seems to be, they seem to be better than everything else. That is what has happened as he started to envy the wicked or the unbeliever, or the ungodly, or your neighbor who does not know Jesus Christ. And so how does corporate worship help the psalmist? In light of Psalm 17, uh, verse 17, sorry. It turns his attention back to God. It peels his eye, it peels his eyes from that false notion, this perception that the wicked seem to be uh, uh, you know, doing better, it turns, it turns his gaze back to God. So principle, principle one, the first principle I want us to know is that as we come together in corporate worship, it gives us direction. And what do I mean by that? Is that it helps us to be able to see who we are able to see. It gives me a direction. It says, I'm going to have these blinders that will not distract me of what is happening around the world because I know the truth of God's word is this. It gives me direction. I love that song. When I gaze upon his uh, holiness and I look on his loveliness, the things of this world will grow strangely dim. Because when I move my gaze from off the Lord, it seems to glitter. These things seem so much brighter and better. And yes, they seem to be doing better. And so then I naturally am inclined then to go after that. But the psalmist says, it was good. When I came into the house of the Lord, my direction changed. My gaze was changed. It's fixed on Christ. Let me make the second observation. Because of his distraction, now the psalmist is fooled into thinking that the wicked suffer no ill consequences. That, that, that wicked can go, or the ungodly, or the unbeliever can go do whatever they want, as long as they want, and there's no consequences. That's, that's how it feels. You see, in verse 10, if you look at verse 10, it says, Therefore his people turn back and find no fault in him. It's a, it's a slightly difficult verse to translate, but there's no translation that says this, Oh, that even God's people turn to them and eagerly believe whatever they say. What is happening is this. This is what the psalmist is saying. You see, because they seem to be doing so well, 
there are people who are turning and looking at that and says, yeah, that seems to be the right thing. You see, if they're doing well, then they must be doing something right. They've got the secret formula. And so God's people are therefore now turning towards that. And then he goes on to say, because of that, because they've turned to this prosperity, that verse actually goes on to say, some of your translations uses the word, they're squeezed. They're squeezed out of the very last drop. They, they fall prey. They, 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 they seem to be attracted like they moth to the light, but they are trapped. You know, uh, when, uh, when I was working in the hotels, we would have this, uh, the fly catchers. Uh, we know how that works, and some of you know how that works. Like, we try to catch mosquitoes. I mean, you get something very attractive there, or those lights, those particular uh, frequency of light, and you just, just go there, and not realizing there are these electric rods that will kill you. That's the picture here. That's what's happening here. Because when I turn my gaze away and I look at something else, I, I, I'm deluded, I'm deceived to think that that is what's right. And they are taken for a ride. Then he begins to compare again. You see what he does? He says in verse 11, how can God know? Is there a knowledge in the Most High? He, he, he doesn't seem to care. These wicked are prospering. Like, is he really seeing? How, how, like, how, how can he be allowed to live? How can he be prospering so much? Look at me. I've tried my very best, but he, he, he she, they seem to be doing better. Verse 12. He sees that their prosperity is increasing. Behold, these are wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. Their stocks are doing better. Their investments are doing better. Whatever they do seems to turn gold. So much better. And so then the despair of the psalmist in verse 13. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. Raise your hands if you haven't said that. I can't. We have seen, we, we see how well they do. And he says, what's the use of being godly? What's the use of being living the separated life? What's the use of, you know, all of these things? It doesn't seem to be working for me because they seem to be doing so much better. And then he continues in verse 14. All day long have I, been, have I been stricken and rebuked every morning. He says, you know, they keep enjoying the ungodly, the unbelievers. They, they enjoy while I'm being plagued and I'm being punished. God seems to be punishing me. Every time I try to do something, you know, there's this punishment that is coming on. Like, I don't know why, why with this strong hand of God on me. The psalmist is honest. But then he says in verse 15, and this is what caught my attention. See what, what verse 15 it says. And it's, if I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. And he says, listen, I'm going through all this. I see this to be the real thing, but I can't even talk about it. Because if I talk about it, I might just betray the faith of someone else. Your children, he says. The generation of your children. That other godly people might see how I'm behaving, what I'm saying, and as a result, their faith might be affected. And so I can't even talk about it. Because I'm supposed to wear this veneer or this mask saying that as a Christian everything is okay. 
that I don't have any suffering, any problems. So in verse 16, he says, okay, I'm going to try and figure this out myself. Only to realize that it's a wearisome task. And when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. So how does corporate worship help the psalmist? It helps him see that there are, there are these two end results, these two paths of life. There, are, there, there is this two life paths that people can take, but it ends in two different ways and has two different directions. One leads to death, the other leads to life. This broad way where everybody is going, not the broad way from New York, but, you know, I'm talking about this, this way, this highway to hell, as it seems. Like, everybody is getting on that because there seems to be this fun, this party that's never-ending. But that leads to death. The narrow way, the less-traveled way, the, the way which is difficult. I mean, it's got full of potholes. I, can't, I don't have the comfort of riding this road easy, but that seems to be leading to life. And so principle two is this, distinction or discernment. I want to use the word discernment. I know I put up the word distinction, but discernment. Help me to discern the right from wrong. Help me to discern the ends of these two life paths. Help me to realize that what my eyes see is not what reality is what reality is all about. That I'd be distinct. That and so, you know, it means that as every member that we would we would help encourage each other to see this true value in Christ. When I'm deluded, when I'm deceived, when I feel like, you know, I need to run after other things, that you would come along and say, listen, you need to see, understand the true value found in Jesus Christ. Help understand this discernment. The church is called the pillar of truth in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, and the work of the church, therefore, in my life, in our lives, is that it's not to make us comfortable, but as much as to cut us where we sin, they will tell us the reality that this is wrong and so that we can course correct. And then you have the third observation. And now he, you find him, find him in the house of God. And when you find him in the house of God, this is how the psalmist responds. He responds to the unfailing faithfulness of God, verses 18 to 26. The unfailing faithfulness of God. He, he, when, he, when he comes into the house of God, the activity that happens, whether through sacrifice, whether through the reading of God's word that may have happened, or whether through the fellowship, similar to what happens in our times too, we don't know what happened there, but it, it allowed him to regroup his energies, redirect his gaze to respond to the unfailing faithfulness of God. I want to draw out 
for you three responses of the psalmist here. The first one, the psalmist has spiritual clarity, verses 18 and 18 to 20. He has spiritual clarity, verses 18. Truly, you set them on slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. The wicked will soon fall and rise no more. Verse 19, how they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. There's going to be the Big Bang. Big Bang did not necessarily happen at the creation time. Even though when God speaks, it, it would have been like an, you know, uh, like an impact. But there is going to be this big banner. So they'll be destroyed in a moment. In a moment. Everything. Uh, the wicked will be destroyed. In verse 20. Like a dream, one awakes, O Lord. When you arouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. I don't know what's happened to you. Many times you wake up in the morning, what was that dream? I just want to remember that dream. It's loud. That was, you know, the dream's gone. The psalmist is saying exactly that. That these are just like those dreams that are forgotten. The ones that the psalmist was was, uh, uh, envying or envious about. The second response is that he makes a spiritual confession, verses 21, to 20, 21 and 22. He makes a spiritual confession. Listen to this. This, is, this, again, is the honesty of the psalmist displayed. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. What he was saying is that I had this bitterness of heart and my behavior towards God was terrible. What he was saying is that when, when things didn't go out, I turned against the very God from whom my help comes. I became bitter. Now I turned against God. I, 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 I was like, you know, I was acting out against God. Isn't it funny that the, the very God who is to be our refuge and our help is the one we run away from when we are, you know, so caught up in our own misery and envy and bitterness. And the psalmist says that experience was his. Then you have the third response of spiritual praises, verses 23 and 24, nevertheless, nevertheless, the psalmist enjoys the power of the nevertheless. You know what that means? He says, I was doing all these things. I was being unfaithful. I was not doing what God had told me to you. Nevertheless, the faithfulness of God. I was brutish. I was turning away. I was envying someone else. I was looking somewhere else while God is trying to talk to me. Nevertheless, the faithfulness of our God, the faithfulness of God, I'm continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you receive me to glory. What a joy. Listen to this. You know, we all know about that poem, right, by the footsteps on the sand. And at one point in time, the the, uh, the poet, he turns around and he sees there's only one step one set of footprints, and so he asks God, and he realizes those are the time when it's been the most trying times, and he asks God, like, I thought you would never leave me, but when I see that I was in the most difficult time, I only see uh, one set of footprints, and God says, oh, that was the time when I carried you, and I have a similar poem, but it's slightly different. When I turn back, I see drag marks there. 
And I said, what happened there, God? And he says, yeah, that's the time when you refused to move and grace didn't let go and he dragged you along. And I was like, that's my story. And I'm thankful to God for the nevertheless in my life. We have all been so unfaithful and oftentimes because we've been distracted and uh, we have lost this, 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 this uh, um, starstruck gaze that we should have had on the Lord, which is unmovable. And so the, the third principle is this, corporate worship gives dedication. It gives me direction, it gives me discernment, but it also gives me dedication. It helps me to say, man, I don't want to go anywhere else. I'm committed to this. As my God has been faithful to me, I want to be faithful to him. I'm committed. Hunker down. Tell me when I go away and, and just bring me back and gather me together so that together we can say we, we stay dedicated to this cause, to this person. The cause of the gospel for the glory of God. The, the people of God would live their lives Trusting in the faithfulness of God. So what does that mean? As we come together, it involves you coming alongside and strengthening each other, encouraging each other, building each other up, because we are living in times where we, it gets so tiring and wearisome. And so unless we encourage each other, there's no other place then to go to, Right? Because we are reminded in 1 Corinthians 14 and 3 that we are to do it for the upbuilding and the encouragement and the consolation. Let me move on to the fourth observation. The fourth observation is the psalmist is now living a life of thankfulness and praise, verses 25 to 28. And you'll see because he's come in, his priorities are altered, his praise is sincere. His perceptions are cleared. Uh, he has this clarity. Verse 25 talks about satisfaction. This psalmist is not just heaven-bound, but he is heaven-focused. He finds a satisfaction. Verse 26 is about strength. And verse 26 is great because my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. What the psalmist is saying, his theology is accurate. You see, get this. The, the psalmist is saying, listen, I can see that they're prospering. My state has not changed. I, my financial, my emotional, my social, my physical, nothing has changed compared to them. But that's all right because my God is my strength. We, we sang this song in, about amazing grace. If I remember the n number correctly, I think it's 323. No, it is not. <laughs> um, if somebody can turn to that amazing grace, and, uh, three, 332. In the third stanza, it says, through many dangerous toils and snares have already come. And it's not the end. Christian life is not about the end of your problems and your you know, challenges and conflicts and, and worries and I don't know what you might be facing in your, in your own private lives that nobody, no one else knows that you can't share with. 
But according to the theology of the psalmist, and according to what this verse, this, this stanza reminds us, tis grace that brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. That's the strength. That's the confidence. As we come together, we begin to realize that we have this new uh, dedication to stick to what God want us to say it. So verse 20, 27 talks about salvation. You see, those who are ungodly, they will perish. But I will be preserved. That's the contrast. And verse 28 is about sanctuary. The psalmist now enjoys the nearness of his God. He says, God is both the strength of his refuge and the source of his praise. God is the strength of his refuge and the source of his praise. You see, he, he's saying, I know I looked away and I got caught up by the glitter, the, the false god, uh, gold, the, the, uh, the glitter that is not real. But now, in the company of God's people, as we do these things together, as we glorify God, because when we, when we all glorify God, we all face in the same direction, isn't it? it? It gives me this discernment that this is the greatest thing that, is, that can ever happen in this world. So why, my brothers and sisters, are we then down and dejected when we see the prosperity of the wicked? We say that's all right because even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. I will walk. He doesn't protect us. He protects us, but he doesn't prevent us from the valley of the shadow of death. But God is my strength. That's what the psalmist says. And that's our confidence. And we say he is enough. His grace is sufficient for us. And that happens in the collection of God's people as we come together, glorifying God and building up each other. Let me end with this, um, uh, this quote from Habits of Grace. It says, Corporate worship is the single most means of grace and our greatest weapon in the fight for joy because like no other means, corporate worship combines all three principles of God's ongoing grace, his word, prayer, and fellowship. It is corporate worship with its preaching and sacraments and collective praises, confessions, petitions, and thanksgiving, which most acutely brings together the gifts of God's voice, his ear, and his body. The essence of what we said is that, right? We can, you know, we all, we, we, we all separately worship, and yet we sometimes, like, it's tiring, but in coming together, this is God's desire, that we are gathered together to glorify God. And we do that, and when we do that, it builds us each other up. That's the joy of corporate worship. That's the joy of our coming together, gathered in his name. May his name be glorified. Father, we thank you. We thank you, Lord, that in your wisdom, you arrange for this. We thank you, Lord, that, that, um, that you, would, you have not left us alone. You have given us your spirit in us 
and the saints around us. And therefore, as the psalmist in Psalm 16 says, uh, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. There is no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. And so we want to join in with the psalmist to say, Lord, we thank you, we love you. And thank you for your faithfulness when we were distracted, when we started to walk down the Broadway, and when we started to uh, get, uh, uh, when our temptations were, uh, were taking us away from this gaze, this desire to honor and to glorify you. And we pray, Father, that, that collectively we as a company of God's people, redeemed and placed here as, as a testimony and as a light, we would be to you a bright, a testimony, a, a city in the light, a city on a hill that cannot be uh, hid, a light of the earth that cannot, be, that cannot be covered, or the salt of the earth that's not lost its savor. And that's our desire, Lord. Father, we pray. Be glorified. We thank you again. We love you, Lord, in Jesus Christ, the Lord's name. Amen.